Hey, Dame. Yo. Do you happen to have any idea who this episode is brought to you by? Oh, I think I have a clue. I think I know. <laughs> this episode of Ergo is brought to you by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. And if you know Ergo, we love independent and we love shit not being locked down. So <laughs> so go ahead and get Overcast for free on the App Store. Hi there, this is friend of the show and self-proclaimed honorary third Ergo host, Eve Ewing. This year, I curated a series called the Black Freedom Lectures, which was dedicated to talking with renowned Black scholars to share knowledge and spark discussion on topics with an explicit Black liberation lens. We sat down with the speakers after each lecture and had some great conversations. And throughout the month of August, we're sharing those conversations with you as special episodes of Ergo. So today, you're going to hear a Q&A of me interviewing one of our guests. If you want to learn more or if you're curious to see the original lecture, visit our website, blackfreedomlectures.org. If you don't want to do all that, I promise it will still be a great conversation. On this episode, you'll hear from the incredible Ashawn Crawley talking with me about Black sacred life. There's so much in this conversation. I really hope you enjoy it. Ashawn Crawley is a visual artist, a writer, and a teacher based currently in Charlottesville, Virginia. He is an associate professor of religious studies and African-American and African studies at the University of Virginia. He's the author of the recently award-winning Lonely Letters, just won a Lambda Award. Congrats on the Lammy. Um, and Black Pentecostal Breath, The Aesthetics of Possibility, which was published in 2016. Um, he's currently at work at, on a book about the Hammond B3 organ, which we're going to talk about this evening. Um, and the book is also about the Black church and sexuality. His artwork, um, which I'm going to go ahead and flex and say, I have some of the artwork in my house. Very proud of that. Uh, his artwork lies at the intersection of performance, painting, and sound making. And all of his work is about otherwise possibility. Dr. Ashawn Crowley, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm well. It's Thursday. It's the end of the week. It is. I just made a pound cake. I'm good. <laughs> you did. Now, can I ask you, can I ask you a pound cake question? Sure, sure. Okay, do you have like any secret pound cake, like secret ingredients, or do you pretty much play it straight? I've been lately doing a lavender cream cheese pound cake. (laughs) Hey, is the cream cheese in the, or that's the frosting? No, it's in it. It's in it. Oh my gosh. Okay, great. Yeah. Really, really, it's, it's too decadent, but I've been baking a lot during the pandemic because of stress. And so. Yes. I and you're a gardener. And so do I do you grow the lavender? Is it your lavender? I do grow with? lavender, but my lavender this year is not growing. It's looking really? terrible. It's just stuck. So wow. <laughs> I had to purchase this lavender. I, I too bake and garden. And so I, I might um, unapologetically be a biter and just copy off your lavender <laughs> pound cake. That sounds amazing. Um, 
So let's, I have a lot of questions for you this evening. Um, So you have formal theological training and you are a professor in religious studies, but I intentionally wanted to give this week's conversation a very open-ended title instead of like the black church or black religion, because I think that your work nods to something that is much more expansive, um, which we might call spirit or broadly the sacred. And I was wondering if you would um, start by telling us a little bit of your, your sacred autobiography or your spiritual autobiography. How did you get to be where you are and, and develop the interests that you have? Well, um, thank you again for the invitation and thank you who's watching on YouTube. I appreciate you all being here. Um, I grew up <clears throat> in Northern New Jersey. My father is a pastor of a Pentecostal congregation, a Church of God in Christ, which is a Pentecostal organization. And my mother is a preacher in that um, denomination. And I was a preacher. My older brother was a preacher in that denomination. Um, he was the musician for our church. <clears throat> it was a small church, so you know, all hands on deck pretty much. Um, he was the musician for our church. He played the Hammond organ before um, he went to college. And then he went to college, we didn't have a musician. And so I started learning how to play the Hammond. And so I was a musician for the church. I was a choir director for the church. And then I moved to Philadelphia to go to University of Pennsylvania for undergrad. And <clears throat> I immediately started the New Spirit of Penn, um, which is the gospel choir at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I was a musician for several churches in Philadelphia. Um, I had constantly had a very deep sense for and of spirit. Um, and I was really, really conservative when I was a kid, too. Um, a lot of the things that I think now were things that I would find reprehensible and couldn't understand when I was a child. <clears throat> but I was always in church. Um, one of the first things I did when I moved to Philadelphia from New Jersey was to find a church home. It felt more necessary for me to have a community of people that I could rely on spiritually than even like choosing my classes, which literally <laughs> I found the church before I chose classes. Um, it was that important to me. And so from a very early age, just having this sense for the divine, having a sense for something that was more urgent that connected us to one another, um, being deeply imbricated in the music and implicated in the music, being a choir director and a musician. Um, I really enjoyed directing the choir. I joined a church in Philly, um, probably 2003, the end of 2003, and immediately became the youth choir director for this kind of huge church, even though no one knew me. Um, I was really good at directing the choir. And so it was really an enjoyable experience, but Alongside this autobiography that I'm giving you is this queerness that I could not get rid of and I could not understand. And so at a very young age, I had a sense for um, affection that went in multiple kinds of directions that did not neatly correspond to um, compulsory heteronormativity. Had no language for it, but I knew that, for example, I was attracted to like the boys in my sixth grade class. And I couldn't understand why, because I had such a, to me, according to me, such a deep sense for the divine and such a strong connection to um, who I thought God to be at that time. And so while I'm experiencing these deep practices of spirituality and connection with churches and love and joy, I'm also experiencing something that makes me feel really distant from not only God, but distant from my own sense of self. I couldn't, I couldn't understand who I was. And so I constantly, constantly struggled, moved to Philadelphia, got an apartment and 
explored a lot, but was exploring a lot while also going to church a lot and having two very contradictory kinds of lives living in me and not knowing how to reconcile those things. And so towards the end of my time in, um, at University of Pennsylvania, I started in 1998 and I graduated in 2003. Um, I left the, um, the New Spirit of Penn the end of my third year because in my mind, I had begun to finally explore, explore the possibility that queerness might not be sinful. And there were a series of events that occurred that allowed me to at least ask the question, is it sinful? Um, one of them was I went on a date with someone in 1999, and then I went on the date with the same person a year later, Black Friday 2000, and the person said to me the second time, oh, you still think being gay is a sin? And like it was the first time something that I had, that in my epistemological order or the way that I thought about knowledge and how I understood myself, it was the first time that sexuality was a question and not, oh, these queer people know they're going to hell. It was the first time that it had ever been put to a question for me. And I'd also taken a class at University of Pennsylvania um, that compelled me to think about the deep interrelation between forms of marginalization in terms of race and forms of marginalization in terms of gender and class, but then also forms of marginalization and their interrelation with sexuality. And it produced an existential crisis, but it was one that was necessary. And so I um, wrote this article for the Daily Pennsylvanian that was about the relationship between homophobia and sexism um, the, a couple of months after I graduated from University of Pennsylvania. And that was my first real foray into not just saying I'm questioning these things for me, but trying to do so publicly because I felt like by saying it publicly, I was forcing myself to be accountable to the new ways that I was trying to think. And so I went to seminary in 2005 and <clears throat> that's when I started declaring myself to be agnostic. I stopped going to church. I was a um, chaplain at Metro State Women's Prison um, for the first year of seminary. And our job was to go to the prison every week and to preach to incarcerated women. Um, and I felt like we were being asked to placate and I felt like we were asked to pacify. And I felt that what we were being called to do spiritually was to justify a system of inequity and harm. I had never read Angela Davis at that point. I had not read um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. I hadn't read any, I hadn't read Critical Resistance. But, but you felt it, but you felt it. But I felt it, right. like mm -hmm. on a visceral level, um, going into this space on a weekly basis. And I met with one woman every week and we talked and she said to me, I like you as a chaplain because you don't come in and you pray. Like every other chaplain, the first thing they want to do is say, let's pray. And I was like, I don't, I don't actually do that. And one time she asked me like, are you... And I was like, yeah, I am. She was like, okay, good, me too. And like finding modes of connection based on queerness was something that was really, really um, generative and beautiful to me. Um, and so I kept having these experiences of deep spirituality and deep connection, but the, the doctrinal and theological positions of the religious communities that birthed me um, were at odds with these ways that I was connecting with folks. Um, 
And so, you know, I declare myself agnostic, but I still feel a deep sense of spiritual connection. And I still have a deep appreciation for the Pentecostal world that taught me how to listen, taught me how to feel, taught me how to sense and vibrate relation to the world. And so I appreciate that. And I try to take that with me in all of my practices and all of my thinking and all of my writing, but also trying to connect with folks who are a-religious, who refuse religion, people who are spiritual but not religious, people who are Muslim and Buddhist and, and like um, practice African um, traditional religiosities and candomblé and, and um, voodoo. So like trying to connect for me is something that the practice of blackness is, which is um, which our religiosities perhaps emerge from, but they are not reducible to. I don't know if that answered the question. Oh my gosh. Yes. That, that and gave me seven more questions, but <laughs> something I want to say about your um, something I really appreciate about your work and your, what you do and what you put into the world is that I hear what you're saying about early in your life, feeling a schism between, wait, I might be a queer person, but how can that be? Because I'm also this deeply divine person. Yep. And I really appreciate the ways in which publicly you present those things as being a convergence uh, and, and finding a divinity through queerness as opposed to, you know, th that we might call intersectional um, as opposed to seeing them as being at odds. And, and I think that's really um, powerful and beautiful. So I just, I have that appreciation. Um, Can I just say that it feels really important to me to do so publicly because for example, when I was um, the director for the new spirit of pen and the choir was asked to sing as a part of Q Pen, which is the queer week of celebrate or the celebration week for queer folks at the University of Pennsylvania. I remember saying to the board of um, to the board of whatever we were called, <laughs> "We're not singing for them." Wow! And the people on the board were like, "But why?" You're wild, right? And I said, "Because we don't want to give them the impression that we're okay with their sin." Right? Wow. There was this complete way that I was able to distance myself from the very thing that I was caught up in mm -hmm. and, and I did it publicly. And so it feels really necessary to be just as even more emphatically public about the fact that queerness is not like this sinful thing or this thing to renounce, but is this deep joy, is this deep pleasure, is this deep love? Um, because it was so very easy for me to be able, and I'm sure, I'm 100% sure everyone on the choir was like, <laughs> <laughs> you you get where I'm going. And they're looking at me like, but uh, okay. for real, like <laughs> you're the one saying this, but like when I, I was convinced, right? And like I was convinced also that no one could see me, that no one could sense um, that it was a struggle. Um, there was an incident that I've never talked about publicly and I won't talk about publicly here because I don't want to take up too much time. But like there there was an incident that happened very publicly and someone who's a dear friend of mine asked me like very point blank, Ashan, are you gay? It's okay. I don't like I'm not going to. We're still friends. I still love you. And like literally, nope. I was like, it was a joke. I don't know. It just got out of hand. Y'all just fully misunderstand. Like, because in my mind, I had to convince myself. And so it feels very necessary and urgent, too, to be as public and forward and intentional about um, 
this new and living way to use some King James Version Bible language. But it feels it feels very necessary to do that because I was I was very very terrible to queer folks, including myself, mm. in another kind of mind in another kind of world. Yeah, you know, thank you for sharing that, and also because I think that it's very rare for people to just share stories of change over time and that you are not, you are not the same person that you were 20 years ago. Um, And I think something else that really emerges from the autobiographical story that you shared is for you, um, collectivity feels really important, right? So before you even sign up for your classes, you're like, I need a people, I need my people. And, you know, one of the things that you talked about in your lecture is that, um, that although people think, as you said, that all the energy in the black church comes entirely from the pastor. And for those who've never been in a black church, that there's, um, even in media and pop culture, right. There's this figure of the singularly charismatic pastor. You tell this amazing story in your lecture about how there's a conflict before the service. And as a result, the organist sabotages the sermon and the sermon becomes boring. Um, and so I was wondering if, and to me, that's a testament about the role of this, this collectivity. And I was wondering if you could talk about the role of collectivity as you see it in Black divine sacred life and Black life in general. Yeah. And, you know, collectivity is really important because it's... <clears throat> it really releases pressure from it being about individual genius. Mm. And instead, what you have is this, this practice of interrelation as the occasion from which the sacred actually happens. The sacred is the interrelation. And so like that story that I tell at the beginning about this pastor preaching and the son gets mad. And so the son is like, I'm not going to play shows that what is necessary is this relationship between this person who is preaching and this musician who is playing. And when that relationship is um, severed, or if there is something that is in the way of it, if there is an obstacle, then the relationship between cannot happen. And thus, the entire community is affected by that. I try to use those kinds of instances as microcosms for the way that we can think about how we can become together because mm. coming together is, you know, I feel as if, I feel that if I had had a similar kind of community of dense queerness um, when I moved to Philadelphia, that perhaps I could have more early um, or earlier have chosen or selected queerness as a way and a mode to inhabit, but because there was not a community with which I could find, and because the church community was the one that I was familiar with, and I knew if I find a church in this organization, the people will find, they will be kind to me, which turned out to be the truth, that I felt that, I feel that had the community, a certain kind of constitution of community been possible and available, then I perhaps could have made different kinds of choices earlier on. And so for me, constantly trying to think about how can we make evident the fact that community already exists? How can we make evident that the practice of otherwise is already here and that all we have to do is point out otherwise and say, it's happening here if you want to join up with it. We're not going to coerce you. We're not going to coerce you. But like, if you want to join the struggle for abolition against imprisonment, then there are people who are doing the work. And so let's find Mariam Kaba and let's find Ruthie Gilmore. Let's find the folks who are engaged in this work, in this struggle, and join that work. Um, And so that's, that's, to me, the importance of collectivity is that they're constantly doing the work. And 
if they can make and the ways that they make themselves available for us to join them um, is really, really important. Yeah, that that's so powerful. I mean, um, I've been thinking a lot. My grandparents are on both sides are very involved in the church. And I think a lot about the modes of collective efficacy that are possible in church spaces that um, as someone who doesn't regularly go to church myself, I worry a lot about the ways in which we are maybe not sufficiently replacing those modes of collective efficacy as regular church membership um, becomes less and less of a part of life for people of our generation and, and coming up. Um, as well as like singing, uh, but uh, speaking, you know, and I saw, you know, I remember people starting to talk about like coming into what it means to have the first generation of R&B singers that wasn't necessarily raised in church. But I digress. Let's continue talking about music. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about the book that you're working on now about the Hammond B3 organ. And I know you also have um, a clip that you wanted to share with us. So you can share the clip and talk or talk and share the clip, whatever works for you. Well, I'll say really quickly, and then I'll share the clip. I'm working on two books about the Hammond organ because I'm weirdo. Um, Amazing. One is, a, <clears throat> is a critical, let's call it, book that's about um, that's trying to do a history of the Hammond organ and trying to think very intensely about how do we get from 1935 with the invention of the Hammond organ. It was a very specific instrument, but if you watch everything from Martin to um down at the club when the girls get um p valley what's it is that what it's called p valley um oh yeah there's a, that's a new show that i haven't watched but i believe it's what it's called yes yeah well, y'all y'all know who i'm talking about <laughs> on that show too there are church scenes right and in the church scenes are this instrument <clears throat> this very massive brown instrument it's a hammond organ and that even if the sound that is coming from this instrument is not an actual Hammond organ, that even in Black popular culture, the idea of the Hammond organ is really, really a generative idea about something about the sacred. And it's not- Right. It tells us we're in church. It tells you you're in church. And right. so um, I'm very interested in how we get from the invention of this instrument in 35 to my projects are going to end around 1995 with the sort of- onset, the real onset of the HIV pandemic in Black social community, because a lot of choir directors and musicians um, um, are people who are living with HIV in the 80s and the 90s and are dying and are being disappeared from churches. And there is no collective mourning at all. Hmm. There is no collective reckoning with the fact that lots of these musicians and choir directors and singers are being lost. There's just a desire to move on. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do in both of the projects, so one is a critical project, and then the other is a <clears throat> fictionalized um, um, project which look that takes or creates um, six or seven short stories about musicians who play the Hammond organ and their relationships with churches. And so in both of them, I talk about the sound of the Hammond organ and the efficacy of the Hammond organ for producing a kind of social space where the sacred can happen. And so I want to play an example of what this sounds like. And the example of what it sounds like is... It's from my, I pulled this video from YouTube. Um, the pastor who passed, she passed away last year. Her name was Iona Locke. She's based in Detroit, Michigan, pastor of the church, um, Christ Abyssinian Ministries. 
and she's praying during a church service right before her sermon. And the musician who's playing the Hammond organ is named Damien Sneed. And so I referenced this in my lecture, but the video or the the sound clip wasn't pop. Um, showing but today up. is the day. I got it now. Today so, is the day. It's three minutes twenty seconds. Let's listen to the whole thing. Let's she's do it. It's for the spiritual that I'm talking about. It's a kind of energy, right? But like, it requires the musician, but it also requires the congregation. Right, right. right. So it's not, it's none of them is taking precedent. They're all in this kind of blurry 
interrelation that is produced as a, a kind of sonic atmosphere. And so they're all producing the space together. And it feels to me very sacred that they are doing these things. And it's not, requ what's required of this is not like their belief. Right, right, though right. They probably all believe something along a similar line. What is required is a certain kind of vulnerable posture such that they can participate in the sounding out that is actually happening, which is not primarily doctrinal or theologically based, but it's based on like the people that you are in the room with. And so trying to think about that particular clip as like a microcosm, the second time I've used this word today, but as a microcosm of what is generally happening in Black social life in terms of intimacy, mm. in terms of desire, because the musician desires something from the congregation and the preacher desires something from the musician and the, music and the congregation desires something from both of them. That desire is constantly being constituted and reconstituted and reformed in this space too. And it seems like it's a good way to think about intimacy. It's a good way to think about care. It's a good way to think about hope. It's a good way to think about trust because you have to trust people in order to do these kinds mm -hmm, of things. Mm -hmm. um, and and you have to be vulnerable. And so all of these dynamics are actually, for me, deeply related to a mode through which we can think about the sexual and sexuality. One of the things you said in your lecture is the space created by the Hammond organ is not primarily about doctrine, but about spirit. So I hear you saying that. And also what you're saying reminds me of um, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't know the quote exactly, but the, the thing that Adrian Marie Brown says in Emergent Strategy, which is there's there's something that can only be done by the people in, who are in this room right now. Yeah. Right. Let's figure out what it is. Yeah. And so there's there's something about reciprocity, about accountability, about mutual reliance that I think is is so deeply political um, that that emerges from what you're what you're talking about. Um, and I. Uh, anyway, I have a question related to that, but one random anecdote is that I find myself thinking of um, uh, my, I recently recovered my great grandmother's Bible and, and the Bible is just like a archival, like, cause she just stuck everything in there. So there's all these random pieces of paper, there's food stamps in there, there's all kinds of things in there. And one of the things that's in there is um, a loan slip where she, she borrowed $50 from the church and she returned the fit. She paid back the $50 yeah. Yeah. and she got a receipt that she had repaid her $50. And in this time where we're thinking about, you know, renewed interest in mutual aid and, you know, what it looks like to support each other. I'm thinking about what it means for my great grandmother who couldn't necessarily get a loan yeah. from any other type of institution, right. To, to give to the church, knowing that, that there's this ongoing reciprocal relationship that it could be you taking out the loan this time. And then when you pay your, fi your $50 back, that's, that's for somebody else, right? It could be the same $50, that's being you know, going in a circle. So I guess we invented micro loans before other people, but, um, but you know, this, so I have, I have many black friends who don't identify as Christian, but who lean on the language of praise, right. Or the devil or black Jesus and black friends that don't identify as Muslim, but who have brought many of the teachings of, um, uh, and repertoires of black Islam into their lives. And people from both of those groups that invoke ancestral or pre-colonial African faith practices. Do you feel like as black people in the contemporary moment, we are practicing a kind of blended spirituality and and if so why do you suppose that is well 
love the question. I think, you know. It was a very leading question. <laughs> so it's so, okay. If you haven't listened to the lecture, one of the characters, Jamal, um, from the fictional part, um, Jamal grew up in this house where, you know. In Philly. In Philly. Philly is important. Right, Someone, right. Some grad student, please, please, please use Philadelphia as your study for religion. Because yes. There is, and I'll tell you the first time that I actually really paid attention to it. New Spirit of Penn, the gospel choir, had to sing at whatever church is on 40th Street next to that McDonald's. I don't even know the name of the church. <laughs> the Baptist Church. The Baptist, 40th Street Baptist Church. Let's call it that. Yes. <laughs> and like, we had to sing there. And I remember going there and the musician who was playing was amazing. He was playing the Hammond organ. He was amazing. And as a good Kojic, Church of God in Christ musician, when you hear a good musician, you want to ask them, like, what is your tradition? Did you grow up Baptist? Are you are you apostolic? Are you Pentecostal? Like, what is your... Where did it come from? Where, because this ain't... This is good. Right. And I want to hear the people that you listen to. And so he got up to leave. And I was like, did you grow up Kojic? And this man said to me, I'm a Pentecostal Muslim and kept walking. That's the most like, Philly thing. That's the most Philly thing I've ever heard in my I life. I didn't know it was a Philly thing. Right. Wow. At first I was like, who is this confused man who don't know what he's talking about? Because how are you fusing them two things? And then years later, Black Planet, I met this dude on Black Planet and we went Not on Black day. Planet, Deshaun. You took it there. <laughs> We should ask Ruha next week. Oh, you want to talk about race and tech? You should talk about Black Planet. Let's talk about Black Planet. I can talk <laughs> about my username, but I will not talk about my username in Black Planet, but it's still alive. But on Black Planet, I met this dude and we had going out on a date to IHOP. And I remember him saying, I am a Jehovah's Witness Muslim. And I said, these things don't make any sense. Wow. But in Philly, they actually do because people are moving. Philly is a black Muslim city. That's what it is. And so one of the things that I, and I remember meeting someone at Penn who said to me, who's Muslim? And she was like, oh yeah, I listen to the Clark sisters and I listen to Yolanda Adams. She was like, you know, we just don't say the Jesus part. And I was like, <laughs> what is going on here? Right. But like, it was really important for me to, to meet folks who were complicating what I thought to be a very easy narrative regarding religion and religiosity. And one of the primary places where the question of sort of comportment toward a spiritual identity was being staged is in music and sound. Mm -hmm. And then it dawned on me that it's not just for people who are Muslim or Buddhist and Christian, but that Christians themselves don't believe the same thing. one of the, I would go to these things called midnight musicals, which are these musicals that have been, they typically start around 10 p.m. at churches and churches in Philly had them all the time. Um, and like there would be people who have certain kind of doctrinal views of Jesus singing songs with other people who have very, very, very different doctrinal views of Jesus. And it's like, you don't believe this other person is going to heaven. You think this person is going to hell. But music is the place where you relax the anxiety so you can come together to actually do something together. Mm. And so I think that that is where we have always been in the 
in moving toward in the first place. And so I think that our contemporary moment is just reflective of the of the fact that people are choosing different faith communities and different paths towards spirituality, but still feel really rooted in blackness. And for me, it's because these various practices of spirituality are not the private property of Christianity. They're not the private property of Islam. They're not the private property of Buddhism. They're not the private property of Candomblé. That mm. they are practices that are only had insofar as they connect you deeper to your sense of self and to your sense of obligation to the world. Mm-hmm. And by obligation, I don't mean like a coercive or a capacity for coercion into doing what other people tell you. I mean a kind of outpouring of one spirit in the service of a more just, kind, loving, and ethical world. And so like when we are doing those kinds of things, it don't matter. And so like it doesn't surprise me now it doesn't surprise me that me, who's an agnostic, is in deep relationship with Muslimas and is in deep relationship with Pentecostals and is in deep relationship with Baptists and people who don't practice anything at all and don't want to practice anything. Because what we're all trying to do is strive for a more just and ethical world. And we're rooting that in our desire for and our practice of Blackness. Hmm. that answer? Yes, yes. I mean, so related to that, Do you think that uh, anecdotally, I feel that more and more black people are also being drawn to try to understand um, African originated uh, spiritual practices that have been severed through colonialism, through slavery? And do you feel like there's something about the political moment in which we live that is drawing people towards that? Do you have any thoughts just on on the kind of resurgence of interest of, of, of African religion? Pre-colonial African religion. In some ways, I feel like it's a resurgence, and sometimes, and and sometimes I feel like it's just a recognition that it's still here. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, the founder of the Church of God in Christ, Charles Harrison Mason, um, had written a very small pamphlet that was about his conversion experience, and I think it was called Elder C. H. Mason and his co-workers. But like the on the first pages of this biography are not pictures of like the the men, because they were men, who he preached with. They were pictures of tree roots and chains and, um, yeah, tree roots and chains. Why tree roots and chains? Well, because one of the things Charles Harrison Mason was known to do was to utilize chicken parts, trees, chains. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> as examples mm-hmm. for his sermon. But it's like, he also talked about how he prayed for the kind of spirituality and spiritual fervor like the old people had. This is man mm-hmm. born in 19, and I'm sorry, in the 1860s. Who the old people? Mm-hmm. And so like, when you begin to put together, like even at this, this very specific um, organizational level, and there's like no conversation about Mason and this very specific um, pre-colonial African practice that is sort of being carried through enslavement, right? There's very little conversation about what that actually means and why we have forgotten that intentionally in order to become more doctrinaire. And so I feel like in many ways, and I write in my first book about how shouting or like dancing in the spirit is, it ain't, it ain't Christian. <laughs> 
it belongs to blackness. It is a practice of blackness and it is informed. And I'm trying to say more emphatically in these next two books that the sound that emerges in black churches, including like minor strains and like the ways that we think about what praying is, is because of Islam. It ain't because of like, Hmm. it's not because of the Nina, the Penta and the Santa Maria. It's not, it's not those things. It is a practice that is informed by black spiritualities that have carried us constantly over and over again. And so I feel like it's not so much a resurgence necessarily as much as it's a recognition of the things that we have severed, thinking that we are categorically distinct from one another and instead say, well, actually we do share a relation with one another. And how can we and how can we share relation with one another without saying that I have to liquidate my difference in order right. to have a relation with you? It's like, no, like, let's have our difference and use difference as the occasion for relation, because that's actually what it means to be human. And so that's that's how I, that's what I'm thinking is happening is just folks are saying, I'm not going I'm not going to dismiss my father who is a Muslim and I'm not going to dismiss my mother who's Jehovah's Witness. I'm. I am because they actually produced me. And so I'm in me is this, this constitution. And so I'm going to do these things together. Do you think that there are ways, you know, how should black people who are in diaspora, who, you know, maybe African-American, maybe descended from enslaved peoples, um, start to think about and access those spiritualities in ways that don't feel appropriative, right. To, or disrespectful to those for whom that line is unbroken. Yeah, yeah. I think you have to you have to practice radical humility. It can't be about I know what I'm doing. I Google. I read Wikipedia. I Google. I, <laughs> I, I did Wikipedia, and I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna mm-hmm. tell you what we're doing. Like I think it calls for us this kind of practice of blackness, which is for me a spiritual orientation. It is the practice of radical humility and saying. It is about the the practice of the journey. It is about Mm. the attempt to figure out. It is the striving. It is not about receiving an answer and and once and for all saying, all right, well, we've exhausted possibility. It is about the the posture that questions compel us toward and remaining in the posture of questions such that when we encounter things that are different, that are unknown to us, we can approach with with a kind of wonder with a sense of awe, with a sense of um, curiosity, but not with a colonizing logic. Like, I'm only doing this insofar as I'm going to make it appropriate for the thing that I know is correct. Right, right. Um, which has been my problem with lots and lots. And I, and I talk about the Christians because that's what I grew up and I could talk about that. Um <laughs> One of my problems has been this enduring way that Christianity often, 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 often wants to only acknowledge things insofar as it makes those things appropriate to itself. Hmm. I'm like, yeah, like that's like I'm not trying to talk about the relationship between the sound of the Adan, which is the Islamic call to prayer, and what you might hear in a Baptist church for um, a charge to keep that I have. I'm not trying to talk about that relation to say, see, what Muslims do is just black Christian. Right, right, right. Like, no, it's like I'm trying to think about the relationship between without ever saying that what we have to do now is say, see, you're almost there. All you got to do is get saved. But I think what that requires is a different orientation to questions that are along the lines of the theological, like what is salvation supposed to mean? What is it supposed to mean to be saved in the first place? 
And I think relaxing one's anxiety about those things is one plate is one of the ways that the practice of humility can actually um, begin to emerge is by saying that, well, maybe that's not what is most urgent and necessary. And it, it's it's hard because those notions culturally and historically are very hard to disaggregate from colonial violence. Right. And so how I, you know, I think that it's really hard to, to kind of do that self-questioning. And I think people have deeply internalized um, ideas about that type of cultural superiority that is itself colonialist. Um, so, you know, you you mentioned uh, your I was going to say novel, but I guess now short story collection fiction fiction project. Yeah. Um, and it was very special to um, hear some excerpts from it in your lecture. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah. So um, the way that I tell this story is I spent the school year 2018 and 19 at the Institute of Sacred Music at Yale. And my application was so that I could work on a project, a book about the Hammond organ and its place in the Black church. And I'd written things that are good and academic and, you know, don't make no sense to nobody. <laughs> you know, I was happy with it. Um, and weirdly, thankfully, uh, Yale decided to fund a one-day um, symposium about the Hammond organ in the Black church. And I was really surprised and really thankful. Um, and so we brought people to... Um, Yale to talk to present work about the Hammond organ to talk about the Black Church. Some folks spoke specifically about the Black Church sexuality in the Hammond, um, and we had a concert at the end. But one of the people who presented is Fredara Hadley, and she talked um, at the end of her talk. She said, "This part that I'm going to say is not a part of my talk at all, but I just mm. want to say that." Um, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s in Florida, and I remember musicians laboring for these churches who were dying, mm. like no one saying anything. And she said, one of the things I appreciate about today is the way um, queer people are being made center to the conversation about the Black church and the sound of the Hammond organ and the importance of both of those um, together. And when she said that, that's where the idea for the um, fiction came from. It was, oh, we have to write about that. Mm -hmm. It felt like um, giving me permission to do something that was probably on the very edge of consciousness, but not at all um, something of an intentional choice. But once she said that, it felt very necessary to do that. And so I began to just try to write the first part and the second part, which is the fictional part, I tried to write it together. Mm -hmm. And the more I tried to write it together, the more it felt like these are two interrelated but distinct projects. And so the short stories are really attempts to honor musicians that I have known um, and the density of their lives without talking about very specific people because I'm right. interested in outing people and I'm, you know, you know, people's personal health is their personal health, and it's sure. not my um, desire to disclose anything like that. But I think that fiction is a register that can allow for the beginning of a reckoning regarding what it felt like to lose so mm. many people. Like, how does that feel? Um, what is the what is the emotional weight of having to think about? Um, this 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 disease that you don't really know everything about 
and you know, I'm trying to actually get a sense for um, public health, and I'm trying to get a sense for like who had health insurance, like right, right, the details. Um, But in order to help me um, tell a story about how it actually feels to inhabit this very specific world that teaches you about love and joy and teaches you about connection and you enjoy the food and the people love you until they don't love you. Mm, like mm-hmm. how, can we, how can we talk about not just the metrics of that, but how can we talk about the the affect, the emotion, the mood of, of that? And so the fictional register is allowing me a different kind of latitude. And so the first... It'll begin in 1930 with a musician who is born in Chicago and experiences certain kinds of um, uh, affectional relationships at DuSable um, and is a, a student of um, Henry Walter Diet. Mm. Like, you know, is really experiencing things, but then has to go to war, like a whole bunch of people go to war. And right. Um, experiences major loss and comes back to Chicago and he hears the Hammond organ and it's the thing that heals him. But also it's the thing that, you know, he's trying to work out his relationship to sexuality. And so starting there and then going to Detroit and then going to somewhere in Mississippi, we're not sure yet, somewhere in Atlanta, we're not sure yet. Um, and then Philadelphia. Is we, by we, do you mean you and yourself? Me and myself. Okay. I didn't know if there was like a research team. Oh no, Like, it's just like a... <laughs> Just we, us, you know. The way that I'm talking about this problem. Uh, <laughs> well, because you're carrying, I mean, it may be, is it because you're carrying these people with you, right? So it's all y'all. Time I read from the Brian and Jamal story, a part that I didn't read for you all. Um, I read for some colleagues here at UVA on Zoom, um, and I got to a certain part and I started crying. I was mm-hmm. And it, because I felt, right, right, I felt Jamal with me, and I felt very much like this is this is a story that I'm just a conduit for its telling, and so I do really feel like I am carrying them with me. Um, two of the musicians who don't show up in what I I read for you all, but who show up in the next chapter, who are connected to Jamal and Brian, um, are Dolores and. Um, Dolores and Janice and Dolores and Janice show up in Black Pentecostal Breath and they show up in the Lonely Letters. And so it felt like it's the right time to bring their story to um, the fore. Um, And so really also trying to honor women musicians who often get written out of the histories of like the the playing of the Hammond, except for Twinkie Clark from Detroit. Like everyone knows her and then like nobody else. And I'm like, yeah, it's like, because a lot of women musicians are teaching a lot of the musicians who go on to be like the famous, the women. famous ones. And then somehow women are left out of the narrative of even like pedagogical practices of the, the Hammond organ. And so fiction is allowing me to do that kind of work. Whereas the sort of critical work with the Hammond organ is letting me ask some, you know, similar questions, but approaching um, the problem um, with a different kind of language register. Well, no, my final question for you was going to be, what does fiction unlock for you? And I think you just answered that. So I, I want to also ask you actually about visual art yeah. in terms of um, using, because you use, you use all of these things as ways of exploring what you've clearly articulated is a, 
a, a thread, right? A continuous thread of not only analytical like questions you're trying to ask, but also something I would surmise about your own divine life, right? And so I guess my last question for you is what does visual art um, as a compliment to all of your incredible writing, what does that unlock for you in terms of your relationship to your own spirit and the kind of collectivity we've been talking about? Well, visual art, um, you know, I wanted to be a baby Bob Ross. I, I really loved the joy of painting. I loved watching. I would come home from school and turn it on and, you know, be asleep by the end. Oh, literally Bob Ross. Literally, Bob, I was watching PBS because I really loved how he was able to like make mountains and my favorite was a waterfall. And fluffy little um fluffy little clouds. Happy little clouds and trees. Like you did all that in 30 minutes. Um there was something really beautiful about like looking at something blank and repurposing it and making it into something else. Um but I couldn't afford like, you know, I got a paint kit when I was a kid, but like, you know, those things are expensive. And then I took two architecture courses in undergrad and I loved them and two photography classes in undergrad and I loved it. But like I was buying the paper, I was buying the pencils, I was buying the T-square, I was buying the plexiglass and the wood and that's expensive. And so like I couldn't afford to keep up with it. I feel like in the same way that I talked about like a return to spiritualities that have already been here, I feel like visual art is a return to a lot of things that I have always wanted to explore and think about or a register in which my thinking has always happened, but I haven't had the material in order to implement it. And so visual practices and sound art practices are allowing me a different way to stage the same questions. And I think of myself as a questions-based artist. And so sometimes the question will lead me toward the um, writing as an object, and sometimes it will lead me toward a painting as an object, or sometimes it will lead me toward the creation of a sound piece as the object that attempts to answer the question. And the question that I'm trying to answer is, how does it feel to be excluded? Like this is like, like just in general. This I think this is what my life is trying to figure out. How how has it felt to be excluded, and how has exclusion also been a gift? And how can we cultivate the gift of exclusion? without cultivating exclusion because exclusion itself is produ- is it's violent. And so is there a way to talk about that which has been produced at the space of exclusion, the joy, the pleasure, the love, the the dissidence, the the refusal, while also recognizing that exclusion itself is a thing that we have to abolish. Um those are the things and so visual artwork becomes a different kind of staging through which to ask that question and to think about possibilities, not for exhausting the answer, but different possibilities for different kinds of answers that might emerge with relation to that question. Oh, thank you so much, Ashan. I apologize that I had to blow my nose while you were talking. Allergies don't want to let me be great. Our bodies do things. Bodies do things. Listen, um, but I, I so appreciate um, everything that you've shared with us, I feel extremely spiritually nourished. And I also, um, I think that, um, we can never have enough examples of people within realms of scholarship and public thinking and, and, you know, and academia, we can never have enough examples of people like yourself who are leading with a question and curiosity um, rather than kind of jumping through the hoops of whatever it is that we're supposed to perform. And I, I'm, I feel 
truly honored to be able to witness the, the multiplicity of ways through which you practice this, this act of um, very generous and very generative questioning. So thank you for that. And um, thank you for being in conversation with me. Thank you. This was great. I really appreciate, like, honest, I really appreciate the questions. It's, 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 a, it's a joy to receive charitable and generous engagement. And so I don't take it for granted at all. Thank, so, you. thank you. I've had enough uh, whack interview questions that I try. <laughs> I try real hard. I try thank real hard not to be whack. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I want to say thank you again to our very special guest, Ashan Crowley, as well as to our entire team, Imani Legron and Siyanda Mohutsua, as well as our ASL interpreter, Barbara Williams-Finley, and as always, our friends and colleagues at the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture and the Mellon Foundation. You can learn more about Ashan Crowley and check out all of his work at ashancrowley.com or follow him on all the socials. He's very funny and his art is good. Um, so do yourself a favor and do that. Ashan, thank you so much again and uh, take care, everybody. See you soon. Thank you. Bye.